Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s inspired style and cutting edge performance technology with its sleek mid cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi piece upper construction delivers high energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. I'm Lisa Stone, and you're listening to Parenting Aces. Welcome to Season 11 of the Parenting Aces podcast, proud members of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. I am your host, Lisa Stone, and this week we are talking college recruiting, and I am thrilled to have with us a PhD candidate, Katie Lever, who is the proud author of a new novel, about college sports called Surviving the Second Tier. Please check the show notes on parentingaces.com for a link on how you can purchase Katie's book and also for links on how to follow her on social media. After listening to this episode, you are definitely going to want to follow Katie Lever. We are speaking about the intricacies of college recruiting, the realities of college recruiting, some of the questions that parents and athletes and junior coaches need to be asking during the recruiting process. And also, we're going to talk with Katie about her experience as a collegiate athlete at Western Kentucky University. So I know sometimes you hear PhD and your eyes glaze over, but please understand Katie is a fabulous speaker. The interview was super interesting, and I'm thrilled to be able to bring that to you this week. For those of you watching the video version of this episode, I want to apologize for the poor lighting. I have been relegated to the outer spaces uh, to record this week, but I hope you will enjoy the information that Katie shares. And just quickly before we jump in, a reminder, if you haven't done so already, we'd love for you to become a premium member of ParentingAces.com. Just go to our website, click on the join button in the top right, and reap all the benefits of being part of our fabulous tennis parenting community. All right, for now, sit back, relax, and enjoy my conversation with Katie Lever. Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s-inspired style and cutting-edge performance technology with its sleek mid-cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi-piece upper construction delivers high-energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. Katie Lever, thank you so much for joining us on the Parenting Aces podcast. I'm really excited to talk to you today. Yeah, thank you so much for having me, Lisa. So as I mentioned, you have a new novel, your first. Congratulations on that, by the way. I, I hear you. it's like having your first baby, though I don't know because I've never written a book, but um, I think it's amazing that you had the determination and the willpower to sit down and churn out uh, an entire book. It's just unreal. Um, all while studying for your PhD, right? Correct. Yes. Oh, superwoman. Um, <laughs> so I want you to tell the Parenting Aces audience a little bit about your experience as a collegiate athlete and maybe a 
to back up a little bit, your experience going through the recruiting process and how you made the decision of where to compete and how that experience led you to where you are now. So I know that's a lot, but. Yeah, no, thank you for that. And, and it's funny, you mentioned writing a book being like having a baby. I've never had a baby, but I think it's probably kind of similar. Um, <laughs> it is one of those processes that's very long and you do have to stick with it. Um, but, but, you know, my book was born out of my experiences as a college athlete. Um, I ran track and cross country for Western Kentucky University from uh, 2012 to 2015. I had a red shirt season that I use in grad school. Um, and it's a mid-major university in southern Kentucky it, it's a it's a moderately sized mid-major um you know so like we did have some influence from d1 schools in our state um like Kentucky and U of L um and and we had that sort of competitiveness within our athletic department and in our AD trying to get football um and men's basketball really competitive and really putting all those eggs in that basket um and so I got a good insight to the college sports industry just based on my experience as a college athlete um and I tell people when they ask me about my experiences um, I tell them that I had a bit of a mixed bag because I had some of the best moments of my life on my college team and also some of the worst moments of my life. Um, when I first uh, started running at WKU, I had a really difficult time adjusting to just the work-life balance demands of college athletes. And something that I tell prospective athletes in all seriousness when they're asking about those demands is that your sport in college will become a job. It is something that requires at least 20 to 40 hours of time um, in, you know, throughout your week, you'll be having to sacrifice um, social, um, you know, like socializing parties and things like that at times. Um, you also might have to, uh, or you might feel rushed or like you're having to cut corners in your academics. If you ever feel that pressure, don't give into it because it's very easy to say like, oh, I'll, I'll take a B on this paper or, you know, C's get degrees. And that's true, but, um, you should never sacrifice your academics for your sport. Um, and that was something that I did, um, or that I, I didn't do when I first got into college. And as a result, um, my performances really suffered as a freshman. And so the first really negative experience that I had in college sports was when a coach pulled me aside after our conference meet in the spring. And she told me, um, Katie, if you don't shape up next year, then I'm going to pull your scholarship. Um, and so we hear these horror stories and we hear things like that that happen. Um, and it's very easy when it hasn't happened to you to sort of brush it aside and say like, oh, this is just anecdotal. This doesn't really happen, but it does. You know, your coach will more than likely view you as somebody who has a job to do on the team, um, regardless of your sport. This is very universal. And if you don't fulfill that job, then you will essentially get fired. Um, the only problem is, you know, college athletes aren't employees, so we don't get other workplace rights, but we do get the negative aspect of that. Um, and so- Can I you one second? Yeah, yeah, so absolutely. You, you just said that you don't advise sacrificing academics for the sport. Can you dig a little deeper into why you say that? Yeah, I mean, you know, at the end of the day, um, that degree is going to get you farther than any athletic performances will because more than likely as a college athlete, you will not go pro. Um, under 2% of all college athletes play professionally regardless of their sport. And so um, 
you really need to focus on getting that degree in college because that is what you are there for. Um, coaches can make this difficult when they do things like, you know, threaten to pull scholarships if you don't do well athletically. Um, but at the end of the day, the most important thing that you can do as a college athlete is focus on that degree and get that degree and, and give everything to it, you know, because if you are an athlete who is thinking about going into grad school, um, you need to, you need to have good grades. It's not just yeah. enough to have the degree you want to be competitive in the application process as well. And being an athlete will help you there, you know, because hopefully whoever is reading your application will say, oh, this person um, played a sport while they were in college. So they have great time management skills. They're organized, they're disciplined. There are all kinds of positives that come with being a college athlete. Um, but you also have to make sure that you remember that your primary purpose is to get that degree and to get it well. It's student athlete, not athlete student, right? Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Unfortunately, it feels like athlete student yeah. a lot of the time. Yeah. For sure. Mm -hmm. And so, okay. So I interrupted your story and I'm really sorry about that. But I think yeah. it's important for people to understand what this commitment is. It's It all sounds so exciting and so glamorous. And you think you're going to step foot on campus and you're going to immediately have this identity as a student athlete at that school, which is all true. Mm -hmm. However, there is the behind the scenes stuff that often is left out of the conversation when it comes to playing a sport in college. And that's exactly why I was so excited to have you on today, Katie, because I know you can talk to that behind the scenes stuff. And I think it's, it's crucial that athletes understand it, that the parents of the athletes understand it, and really that the junior coaches out there understand it as well, because even though they may have played college tennis themselves, things are different now than they were even five years ago, certainly 10, 15, 20 years ago. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, the big reason that I wrote my book was because I wanted to pull that curtain back and, and teach people about the the things that go on behind the scenes that might that might not be super apparent and i want to do it in a way that was more engaging than just throwing like facts and statistics at people because i've learned as someone who does research um and this is so frustrating to me but you know you can you can tell people like oh here's a statistic about um gaps in in scholarships between men and women like title nine doesn't you know doesn't adequately cover that or you know here are some some testimonies about athlete abuse you know that directly coming from the athletes and for whatever reason those facts and those statistics sometimes do not stick and so I thought, okay, like, what if I, what if I tell people a story, you know, what if I get them emotionally invested in college athletes? What if I humanize college athletes a bit? Because it's so easy to view athletes in terms of their production. Um, that's what happened to me when I was a college athlete too, because, you know, after I had that horrible freshman year, um, I had a new coach and I, I improved my times tremendously my sophomore year, I had a great year. I achieved goals that I never thought that I would. Um, but then I started getting injured. And that was, that was the first time I'd ever felt dehumanized as a college athlete. It was after I got injured because my coach's attitudes about me just completely flipped, you know, instead of being, being praised and being viewed holistically as a person and feeling very loved on my team. Um, I was just viewed in terms of what I wasn't doing for the team. You were um, a drain and, at that point. 
Yeah, I was I was dead weight, essentially. Exactly. And it, it was just this horrible feeling of abandonment. Um, and I, I remember my coaches would try to get me to train through injuries. And I mean, I, I was at the point where I physically could not train. It was very, very and I have a high pay tolerance, but it was incredibly painful. Um, and I still have hip issues from my experiences in college and, and training through that through those injuries. But I remember my coaches um, they would try to get me to train through these injuries by telling me things like, oh, you know, you're being selfish by not training. You know, you signed up to support the team and you are not you're not supporting the team right now. Or they would they would point to my teammate and say, you know, she has a grade three hamstring tear and she's still training what's your excuse? And so I felt like I was being lazy. I felt like I was being selfish. I felt absolutely horrible about myself because my coaches were essentially gaslighting me into thinking that I was a bad athlete and that I was a bad teammate. Um, and so, you know, I write about that a lot in my book because I, I don't want to paint, especially, uh, you know, on your podcast, I know you have a lot of coaches listening and I'm sure a lot of very good coaches. And I want to emphasize that not all coaches are bad. Um, I had some very good coaches in college and, and we don't talk about the good experiences enough. Um, but you know, I also had some very bad experiences and it's important, I think, for especially for prospective athletes to get that holistic picture and to make sure that they're navigating the recruiting process well, that they're informed and educated and asking the right questions and taking all of these variables into account um, because the NCAA doesn't ensure any of that transparency in the recruiting process. And it can feel a bit like like a charade or like an act or like a game that that these universities are playing to try to hook these recruits without being fully honest. Um, and so I I always like my my big job with my book and my research and my freelancing is to make sure that people at the very least have a better idea of what they're truly signing up for because they might have a great experience in, in, in the NCAA and I very much hope that for athletes because I think that there is tremendous benefit to call to playing college sports and there's tremendous promise for the industry that's not being fulfilled um, but it's still important to talk about the reasons why the industry is falling short and failing athletes in the process. Can I ask you, Katie, what your recruiting process was like? How did you make the decision to go to Western Kentucky? And what, what did the coaches say to you to, to make you feel like that was the right decision for you personally? Yeah, I actually, I had a very positive recruiting experience. And, and part of the reason is because I'm a third generation college athlete. Um, my grandpa played football for WKU. My mom ran for WKU and my dad um, shot rifle at the Citadel. And so I, I, you know, you mentioned it being a very different college sports um, industry now than it was even five years ago. And that's definitely true of the generational gaps between me and my parents and my grandparents. But we at least sort of knew what the demands would be like. And we knew um, we, we just we we had an idea of what we were getting into. We didn't looking back on it now, it's like, ooh, there was a lot that we didn't know and a lot that I should have asked and a lot that I should have known going into this. Um, but we I, I would say that we were, we were generally pretty well educated and we at least knew what you know, the, what, what the experience would, would possibly be like. So we had some general idea. Um, and so because of that, I knew to make sure that, you know, coaches were showing me how the university would support me academically. So we checked out those facilities. Um, we looked at different um, course schedules and calendars and things like that, degree requirements. Um, and so 
it was nice just at least knowing that, you know, I'm here to get a degree. These are things that are going to help me get that degree. We looked at, you know, different things like um, tutoring resources and, and things that were available to athletes. And we really liked that about WKU um, because they had those resources available. At the time I was a broadcasting, I wanted to be a broadcasting major. Um, I ended up in communication studies and it was, it worked out well, but um, WKU had a really excellent broadcasting program. So like just having that game plan was super, super helpful. Um, and I wish the NCAA would do more to equip uh, prospective athletes with that knowledge because it makes all the difference when you know uh, what you're doing going into the recruiting process. Absolutely. I'm listen, that's uh, the majority of the work that I do here at Parenting Aces is helping families understand what questions to ask and why they need to ask those questions. Because at the end of the day, the coach's job is to recruit new number ones as often as possible for their team, and also to sell prospective student athletes on the school and the, and the athletic program. That's it, that, that's their job. There are very few college coaches, regardless of the sport, that are there to help the athlete develop further in their sport. Because for so many, as you said, the percentage of college athletes that go pro across all sports is so minuscule that Mm -hmm. I think a lot of these college coaches don't see their job as helping these players further develop in their sport. It's more to get them signed on and to win. And, And they are tasked with winning. Don't be fooled. It doesn't matter which division it is. The coach's job is to win. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it, it puts coaches in a very difficult situation Absolutely. as well, you know, because as much as we talk about um, just the difficulties that athletes have navigating the NCAA, I mean, the coaches are in are, are in the middle of a really unsavory system themselves. You know, I mean, I've talked to coaches, uh, to my coaches after I graduated, because a lot of them follow my work and, and my critiques about things like scholarship policies. And they've told me stories. You know, they're like, Katie, we were in these scholarship meetings where we had to allocate certain percentages of our budget to different athletes. And it was just, it was not human what we were doing. You know, it's like we were putting price tags on you guys and it sucked. And I was like, yeah, I mean, it, it, that had to have been an awful experience for them too. So, um, you know, I, I do, I do have, I, I don't know if I want to call it sympathy necessarily for coaches, but um, I have this level of, of understanding and empathy. Sure. And like, yeah, you're in a horrible system too. And, and we need to change this because it's not benefiting most coaches. Um, it, it makes athletes vulnerable in a variety of different areas due to power imbalances and resource scarcity, um, you know, and, and just a lack of protections that college athletes have. Um, and so in a lot of ways, the college sports industry really only benefits those at the very, very top, um, while, you know, the other 98% are put in very vulnerable situations and have to navigate a really um, just an unsavory system that's not designed to benefit them. I want to get back to telling the story of athletes and their experiences. And again, getting back to your book, there is, there are, there seems to be a disconnect between hearing these stories and thinking, well, that was that person. That's never going to happen to me or to my child. Mm-hmm. Can you speak to that? Because it is one of my biggest frustrations as I'm talking to families and trying to help them 
you know, understand the best way to approach college recruiting and the best way to make their decision on schools. And I, it, it just, it makes me really sad to think that there are these stories out there, but families are ignoring that and thinking that'll never happen to me. Yeah. And, and honestly, I understand that reflex, you know, as a parent, you don't want to say like, oh, I'm signing my, my child up to um, be manipulated or to be chronically injured or, you know, to be abused in any way. Like you obviously don't want to go into the recruiting process thinking that, um, you know, because there has to be, you know, I, I think about this a lot. If I ever have kids, I'm like, do I want them to play college sports knowing what I know? And I, I don't have an answer to that. Like, I, I don't know what I would do in that position because on one hand, if if you do well in the NCAA, you know, you can get a lot of your education paid for, you get incredible travel and training opportunities. It really is a once in a lifetime opportunity to be a college athlete. Um, but then if you, if you get any of those negative repercussions attached to it, it really does have lasting damage that can be done. Um, and so, you know, the best approach, at least in my mind is, is realism, you know, understand that, you know, your, your child, if, if they're in high school, they're about to be of age, they're about to, you know, make a lot of really important life decisions um, without, you know, with or without your involvement, depending on, you know, how, how attached they are um, to you and, and your finances and, and, and everything else that you provide for them. Um, and, you know, the, the decision to be a college athlete is a very complicated one, um, but it's just one of those decisions that the athlete does have to make for themselves. You know, parents should absolutely be involved in that because there are a lot of ways that athletes can be uh, manipulated in the recruiting process. Um, But realism is the best way to approach it, you know, because this is just one of those many decisions that, that your athlete is going to have to make. Um, And it's almost, it's, I hate to say it, but it's kind of a coin toss, you know, whether or not they are going to have a positive experience. There are things that you can do to try to prevent that, Um, And going into the recruiting process with eyes wide open, you know, weighing your options and asking the tough questions is is definitely a way to prevent that from happening. But I think that parents would be doing a bigger disservice to their kids by saying like, oh, this is never going to happen. So I don't have to worry about it. True. And, you know, listen, we we both know and most of my listeners know and understand coaches leave programs all the time. There is a term called the coaching carousel. And, you know, so that tells you that this is a common occurrence that happens typically during the summer. You know, your child may have gone through a year, two years, three years of recruiting with a specific coach, made a decision to play for a specific school based on their relationship with that coach. And lo and behold, the summer before freshman year, that coach leaves and goes elsewhere or retires or whatever. And all of a sudden you're on campus with a coach you have no knowledge of, no relationship with, no history with, and you're left to fend for yourself. And there is nothing you can do about it, save transferring. And so, you know, even if you plan really well and do everything right and check all the boxes during the recruiting process, there are still things that can happen between the time you sign that national letter of intent or in the case of D3, make the commitment to go to that school and step foot on campus. And this is why, you know, we always talk about the broken leg test. You know, if on the first day of college, 
I get injured and I can't play my sport, is this school still a place I want to be and can afford to be? Yeah. Yeah. And that, that honestly is a really great mindset to have. It's funny. You mentioned the coaching carousel because I, I mean, I was a college athlete for five years and I had four coaches in that time span. Um, I wish I honestly, I wish there were more statistics on coach turnover in college sports. I'm unaware of any, Um, but just, you know, from my experiences alone, we had, we probably had about at least at least close to a dozen coaches come and go just because with track, you have multiple events and multiple Mm -hmm. coaches coming and going. Um, But we had, we had just massive amounts of of turnover. And that's especially common, I think in the mid majors, you know, because, and I write about this in my book too, because a lot of those, a lot of coaches rightly so, um, you know, they'll view the mid-majors as a stepping stone to the power fives because that's how the industry is set up. Um, I don't necessarily like that that's the reality, but from a career standpoint, it makes sense to, you know, go to a mid-major, stay there for a few years, establish a reputation, and then continue to climb that ladder for better job security as a coach. Um, you know, and, and, and there salary, let's be real. Yeah, Oh yeah. Oh yeah. So like, yeah, there, there are, there are lots of different reasons that coaches do that and I don't blame them for it, you know, cause again, they're, 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 you know, surviving that system as well. Sure. Um, but it's just important, you know, for athletes and parents to have that realistic mindset going into this before they're blindsided by it when, you know, their kid is in college. So let's talk about surviving the second tier in you cast the characters not as track and field athletes um, not as tennis athletes which is my wheelhouse but (laughs) as fighters Mm -hmm. am I under I mean I haven't had the chance to read the book yet which I'm really sad about but I'm gonna read it um, because we did this kind of last minute and the book just came out but I have read lots of synopses so um, tell us a little bit about why you chose that sport and how you decided to create your characters to best tell the story of surviving the second tier. Yeah, so um, the major premise of my novel is that, you know, sometime in the near future, athletic departments eventually outspend themselves. They spend so much on on facilities and fancy gear and just unnecessary renovations and things like that to attract recruits. Um, And so, you know, in my novel, these these athletic departments eventually go bankrupt. And so the governing body of college sports then has to step in and say, okay, we want to salvage this industry. And so what we are going to do is we are going to downsize the multi-sport model of college sports into a single sport model. And that one sport is fighting. And the reason being for that is that um, fighting is a cheap sport. It doesn't require a lot of officials or facilities or anything like that. Um, It's just as violent as football. So it's pretty lucrative and glamorous and people really get into it. It's easy to sell. Um, And the reason I I picked fighting for a variety of reasons. I was not a college fighter. Like I said, track and field was my thing. Um, I actually recently started covering women's MMA, but that was well after um, I I wrote my book. But I chose fighting um, because for for several reasons. So first of all, I really do think that we over glamorize the brutality of American football in ways that are very problematic. You know, we know about head trauma. We know about CTE. We know we have all of this knowledge at our disposal um, about how football directly contributes to that and we're still playing and it's still lucrative and so I kind of took that energy and just ramped it up to 11 and and I wanted to get people to think very critically about how we gloss over the very problematic aspects of American football Um, and also just you know the the 
the UFC and, and the uh, MMA fighting industry, the more I learn about it too, the more I see similar problems that college athletes face. And so that was another um, unintentional critique that I've lumped in there as well. Um, I also chose fighting because it was it, it's a metaphor for the ways that college athletes do have to fight each other in certain ways. So I mentioned like scholarship policies um, and how if you as a college athlete don't do well, that you know your scholarship is on the line and it can potentially be gifted to a teammate. And so that for me created a lot of really unhealthy dynamics within my team. Um, it caused me to view my teammates as threats. Um, and so, and it really just contributed to a lot of problematic thought processes for me later in my professional life because I had viewed success as this limited resource. And so um, when I did that for so long in college, it really bled into my life as a grad student. I would think like, oh, you know, that person got published. So like, I'm not doing enough and I need to be better than them. And it's like, not everything is a competition. And I'm learning that it, you know, that it's okay to be happy for people when they succeed, which sounds so basic, but after having to, you know, fight my teammate, uh, teammates for resources like that for so long, it was just embedded in me to, to, to view other people's success as a threat to mine. Um, I also wanted to illustrate how, you know, women and men need to fight each other in these athletic departments for resources, because so many of these resources um, just automatically automatically go to men's uh, basketball and football as a default, because we have a lot of leaders in the college sports industry that think that those are the only marketable sports. And so there's a lot of fighting for respect. There's a lot of fighting for resources and just general human dignity, especially when you're a female athlete who um, just doesn't have the same amount of default respect as a male athlete and so there are multiple reasons why I chose um why I, why I chose that as my main sport it was very fun to write it um it was I, I was actually really worried I was like I've never like been in a ring so I don't know if I can write the fight scenes well and and people told me like no you got in their heads very well and like it was exciting so I was like okay cool like I could in my brain at least I could win a fight I guess um, but <laughs> And then I do write a lot about, you know, the recruiting process, um, injuries, and just other issues that affect college athletes, because I wanted to use um, this, this fictional novel as a vehicle for my research on NCAA policy as a doctoral student, um, because I learned through talking to people about policy that not everyone is as enamored with policy as I am. And so I would start talking about policy books with them and their eyes would glaze over. And I thought, okay, I need a better way to package my research to make it more interesting. And so for the longest time, I would tell people, you know, the NCAA is a dystopia. And then they'd be like, oh, okay, why? And then that helped me get into the policy issues that I was so fascinated with and that I was so enamored with. Um, and so it really just became a good bridge to talk about my academic work in more um, casual contexts and get people fired up about these issues. So it really all started with a metaphor. I'd never really intended to publish it, but it was, I tell people it was a side project that got out of control and now it's here and available for people. So I, I really just, I hope people learn from it. Um, I hope people start to view college athletes in more human terms after this and see, because it's a very human story. It's not just about the problems in the college sports industry. It's also just about general struggles of college athletes, um, you know, and also just things that athletes can can relate to, like winning a big game or achieving a really big goal or just having good relationships with your teammates that you love and cherish. So I wanted to cover, I wanted to cover a lot of ground in this book. Um, and it's always just been a lifelong goal for me to write a book. So it's, yeah, it's, it's here, it's available, um, surviving the second tier. Um, and it's T I E R like a cake. 
Um, and it's available on Amazon now or on all of my all, all of my social media platforms as well. That link is in the bio. I hate to get like promotional with it, no, you know. No, 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 <laughs> do. And I was just getting ready to say we'll have all those links in the show notes on parentingaces.com as well. So people will be able to just <laughs> click and purchase. No worries about that. We always want to help our guests promote their work and and get more eyes on it. That's that's a definite goal here at Parenting Aces. So promote well, thank away. You. I appreciate that. <laughs> I, you know, Katie, before we close, I wanted to ask you about your freelance work too, because the way that I learned about you was through one of our partners, LRT Sports, which is now rebranded and I, I already forgot the new name. It's second, wait, two what a is day, it? Two a days. Two a days. Mm-hmm. Two a days because um, I knew it was something with a two. Um, you do a lot of work with Kirsten and, and with two a days and have done podcasts and, you know, all sorts of presentations, written tons of articles. Why is that organization something you choose to spend your time with? Yeah, I am. I am so grateful for Kirsten and so grateful for Two-A-Days. Um, it's going to be really hard to get used to saying Two-A-Days instead of LRT. That's, I mean, it's LRT sports for me. I'm so sorry. I, Kirsten, I apologize. I will do better. <laughs> <laughs> I do the same thing. I'm like, LR, I mean, Two-A-Days. Um, yeah. But no, I, I I have so much gratitude for her and her company um, just because what Two-A-Days does and, and the work that I do, there is a ton of overlap between mm-hmm. between us. And, and I, I love their mission and their goals because a huge goal of Two-A-Days is transparency in the recruiting process and beyond. Um, and so they start off with their coach ratings tool, which um, college athletes can access um, and rate their coaches anonymously. So again, it goes back to just like knowing what you're signing up for, because, yep. um, you know, like you mentioned, these recruiting trips, they're essentially highlight reels, you know, they're not going to say like, oh, yeah, we have our athletes do, you, you know, two days every other day. And like, oh, yeah, practice is at this end of campus and your building where all of your classes are at this end, you know, and so there are a lot of logistics. And you have five minutes to get between. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. My, um, so WKU is built on a hill. We're the hilltoppers. That's our mascot because our campus is built on a hill. And so I had so many classes at the top of the hill that I did not realize were at the top of the hill, um, which was always very fun after like morning practice or whatever. Um, But those are just things that, you know, people don't really get into. And so not only do we provide the coach ratings tool, but we have freelancers who write about the experiences of college athletes, either through their own lenses as current and former college athletes um, or through interviews. Um, And then I write a lot about NCAA policy. So, um, you know, things like, like scholarship policies, for example, a lot of athletes don't know that most college scholarships are not full ride scholarships. They'll get what's called an equivalency scholarship um, where they're competing for, you know, room and board or meals or meals or tuition, um, but usually not all of those things combined. Um, and a lot Nor of- are they guaranteed for four years? Yeah, yeah. And, and a, lot of, a lot of athletes don't understand too that they're usually renewable scholarships, uh, which means that they expire at the end of whatever term is outlined on your scholarship agreement. And so it's really important for prospective athletes to read those papers, you know, and make sure that they know, that they know for sure what they're getting into. Um, and so part of my job as a freelancer is, is that education. And that's something that I, you know, as, as a doctoral student who does research and who teaches as well, 
um, I am super passionate about that education and that transparency. I stumbled upon um, two-a-days back when they were LRT sports um, because I was actually, I was blogging at the time and my, my shockingly, my blog on college sports policy was not doing well. Um, and so I promoted it to a Facebook group for um, parents of college athletes. And I said, hey, like some of y'all might be interested in this. It's useful information. Um, and then Kirsten was like, we're interested in this. Would you like to write us a story? And I did. And then she took me on as a freelancer. And um, I'm just so grateful that, you know, that platform allows me to get my work out and to do the education work that I am so passionate about, because it's hard to overstate how important it is for college athletes to um, educate themselves and to know the industry before they get into it. Absolutely. All right, Katie, before we close, I want to go back to your book, your novel, Surviving the Second Tier. Again, it's available on Amazon. It's available through your website. We will have all those links on parentingaces.com. If people want to follow you on socials, how do they do that? And we'll have those links in the in the show notes as well. Awesome. Yeah, my um, I'm primarily on Twitter and Instagram. Um, my handle is Lever Fever. It's my last name followed by the word fever because um, when I made all of my social media in high school, it was Bieber fever was the big thing. <laughs> and so we were just like, oh, like all my friends were like, oh, let's do Lever fever. So that was how that stuck. <laughs> I love it. That's a perfect way to end this conversation. Perfect. <laughs> Awesome. <laughs> well, thank you again for coming on. I'm I'm so excited for you fulfilling your dream of publishing a novel and can't wait to read more of your research. Good luck with your PhD. And I know that's just a grueling, grueling process. But hey, as a former collegiate athlete, you know how to grind, you know how to persevere through difficulties and and roadblocks and all of those things so I have all the faith in the world that we'll see those letters after your name next time you come on the podcast that'd be great yeah thank you so much I appreciate that (laughs) absolutely and to my listeners thank you so much for tuning in we'll catch you next time on Parenting Aces I'm Lisa Stone and you've been listening to the Parenting Aces podcast for tennis parents by a tennis If you like what you heard, please subscribe to us and write a review on iTunes. For more information on navigating the junior and college tennis journey, please visit us online at ParentingAces.com. Thanks for tuning in and sharing us with your tennis community.